This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. When you mention the word worldview, sometimes people's eyes sort of glaze over. Worldview. What is that? And uh, when you mention the word worldview in the middle of a summer series called Basics, might be a little bit of a disconnect. Worldview sounds complicated. Sounds too complicated to be in a series called Basics. Uh, I want to assure you there's nothing more fundamental than your worldview. What is a worldview? Uh, I've been thinking throughout the week, how how do we contextualize what this is? The computer geeks in the room may come up and correct me on this afterwards, but I think uh, a computer operating system is the thing that kind of runs the whole gadget. You don't often notice it. It's kind of working behind the scenes. But it's running the whole thing. The whole thing. If it goes, I think the whole gadget goes. That's a worldview. A worldview is your background assumptions, your background values, your background beliefs, ways of thinking that run your whole operating system. Another way to think of a worldview is in terms of glasses. Glasses. Worldview is like the lenses of glasses. You see everything through them without actually noticing the lenses themselves. Okay? All right. Now is it basic? Is it basic? Have I made the case that this belongs in this series. You have a worldview. You have a worldview. Now, the history of humanity is replete with worldviews. Polytheistic worldviews dominated the empires of Greece and Rome. The Enlightenment generated a worldview deeply influential during the 17th, 18th century and into modern-day times. Over the past 60 years or so, postmodernism has enjoyed the favor of many within our cultural context. Each worldview offers its user a map, a map for life. But not all maps are created equal. In fact, in the smorgasbord of worldview maps to choose from, there's no shortage of bad ones. Today, I want to provide you with a reliable map, a basic biblical worldview. And here's the thing with this message. It, it's, it's, it maybe belongs a little bit more in the college lecture hall than the pulpit. Uh, I've tried to dress it up a little bit to keep your attention 
throughout, but here's what I'm asking for. I'm hoping and praying you do more work with this message than you've done with any other. Now, if in six months I come back to you and I say the same thing about the message I'm preaching on that Sunday, just come remind me. (laughs) I'm hoping you take this message home, ponder it, brew not a cup of coffee, but a pot of coffee, sit in a comfy chair, swing in your hammock, meditate on this way of seeing the world. We need it badly. Badly do we need it. The overarching shape of the Bible's storyline serves as a basic biblical worldview. When God gave us the Bible, in a sense, he was saying, this is how I want you to see all of reality. And it can be summed up in four words. So this is the simple part. The basic plot line of the Bible and the basic worldview we're going to talk about today, four words. Here they are, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God's creation of all that exists, simple enough, right? We can tell that story. Humanities fall into sin, got it? God's work of redemption through Jesus Christ. The restoration of all things that awaits us at the coming of Jesus. This is the basic plot line of the Bible's story. And it's the basic structure for a biblical worldview. What I'm going to do, you know those four words. You know how they fit into the story, the Bible storyline. What I'm going to do is throughout these, through these four, I'm going to offer you 11 applications. 11 applications. Don't worry, you'll get out on time. (laughs) 11 applications through these four chunks of the Bible's storyline, the the frames, the the, the frame of the Bible's storyline, these four words, okay? 11 applications. Let's start with the first one, creation. Let's just rehearse what that is. Genesis 1 and 2, uh, you're familiar with the story, God speaks, let there be light, and there was light, let there be this, and it was so, let there be that, and it came to be. God speaks creation into existence, and throughout and after, God looks at what he has made and says, oh, this is good. (laughs) This is really good. The pinnacle of God's creation is something he forms in his own image and likeness. Mankind, male and female. Right? Simple enough. Everybody can tell that story. What are, what are the applications of that for our worldview and how you see the world? Let me mention three under the category of creation. Okay? First is accountability to God. Accountability to God. What I find incredibly amusing and heavy is that the very first words out of God's mouth to a human being are prefaced with this statement, and the Lord God commanded the man. Okay. God makes Adam, and the very first words out of God's mouth to this creature he's made are prefaced with, and the Lord God commanded the man. Wow. Okay, you talk about foregoing pleasantries. There is no shaking of hands and exchanging of names here. The Lord God commanded the man. God says to Adam, I made you. I call the shots. I made you. I call the shots. 
And this is God's message to all of Adam's descendants. That's each human being. I made you, I call the shots. So perhaps the two most important questions we can ask ourselves as we interface with life in this big bad world are, what does God think about this? What is God's opinion of this? What is God's perspective of this? And what would God command me to think or do? It starts there. I made you. I call the shots. Not you. I call the shots. Imagine going for a walk on some balmy summer evening, and as you turn the corner, you head into an adjacent neighborhood, you spot something in the driveway of one of the residences, and it's a sizable contraption just sitting in the, in the driveway. Something you've never seen before. And you pause in your leisurely jaunt, you start to look this thing over, and you quickly realize not only is the whole contraption unrecognizable to you, there isn't a part on it that looks familiar to you. The homeowner comes out and you ask the obvious question. What is this? Turns out your neighbor's the inventor. He can tell you everything you want to know about this contraption. Most importantly, what it is and what it does. What purpose it serves. Because he made it, he knows the ins and outs of it. Every part, every part is there purposefully to serve something the inventor decided this needs to be done. This role needs to be played. Now, if you put that anecdote on steroids, you get a little closer to God's invention of human beings. Creation is what grounds all human accountability to God our maker. Creation is what grounds all human accountability to God our maker. If God commands us to do something or to think some way, it's because he's your inventor. This is your purpose. Creation is what grounds all humanity, all human accountability to God our maker. That's the first application of the doctrine of creation. Accountability to God. I call the shots, God says, not you. Second, matter matters to God. Matter matters to God. So God pronounces the material creation to be good, very good. Steve Hoppe has a helpful way of thinking about our worldview in relationship to the physical creation. He uses the schema of God, garbage, and gift. Our relationship to the material world can take on one of those three ways. It can be God, it can be garbage, it can be gift. And there are two errors, obviously, that we can make in our worldview regarding the material creation. We can treat the creation as God, or we can treat it as garbage. So what happens, practically speaking, when we treat the material creation as God? Well, that would be called materialism. Materialism. Now, materialism covers a broad range of things. You could talk about all kinds of greed, the obsessive accumulation of things, hoarding, or its corollary simply being stingy. A lack of generosity is materialism. Or even down to using the material creation to give you a sense of value and worth. You prop it up for others to see so that the right prestige comes your way. 
Certain strands of environmentalism and animal rights activism fall under the category of materialism, where rather than human beings ruling over and subduing the material world, it gets flipped. So what happens when we treat the material creation as garbage? That's God. What happens if it's garbage? The practice of asceticism is an example of this, where material things are renounced, vows of poverty taken. Often this includes withdrawal from society in general. Now, the noblest motivations for such living are understandable, but in the end, this is still a slap in the face to God who presented human beings with the material world he himself pronounced to be exceedingly good. The Apostle Paul affirms that, 1 Timothy 4, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. The material creation can also be treated as garbage when we swing environmentalism or animal rights activism to their polar opposite, and we end up abusing the created order, oftentimes in pursuit of some other kind of materialism. The material world is good, exceedingly good. God said so. But the material world is still creation, not creator. So we have a delightfully nuanced responsibility to both use the material world for our enjoyment and benefit and to take care of it as benevolent rulers over the very thing God said is very good. A third application of the doctrine of creation is the dignity of human life. There is clearly something unique about human life that sets it apart. This is detected in observing the fact that human beings possess an unmatched ingenuity and creativity, communication capacity, superior powers of cogitation, existential awareness. Of course, we don't just start there or stop there with our own observations about the uniqueness of human beings. The, the, the locus, the focal point of authority that we go to to find that out is in God's word. And there we're told we, as human beings, and human beings alone, are made in God's image and likeness. When Noah and his family got off the boat after the flood and entered a new creation, God gave them some instructions, like he did with Adam and Eve, about how things were going to work. Included among them are these verses. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man... From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So God institutes capital punishment, and he uses the fact of the image of God in man as the basis for it. It's, it's an attention-getting, jaw-dropping, mind-exploding comment. To desecrate the image of God is a high crime. Human life possesses an unrivaled dignity. It's precious. It's valuable. It's to be treated as the actual image of God. This has massive implications for how we treat the unborn, the elderly, special needs, widows, widowers, orphans, oppressed groups. Yes, Vikings fans. Packers fans and the person sitting next to you there are very few things all human beings have in common this is one of it 
There is equality among human beings by virtue of this one truth. We bear the image of God. We bear the image of God. So the creational aspect to our worldview means accountability. God is your purposeful creator to whom you look and ask often, God, what do you think about this? What is your perspective on this? What do you command me to do or to think? The creational aspect to our worldview means matter matters to God. He thought of it and he thinks highly enough of it to pronounce it as exceedingly good. We have a delightfully nuanced responsibility to both use it for our enjoyment and benefit and take care of it as benevolent rulers over the very thing God said is very good. And the creational aspect to our worldview means human beings are the image of God, valuable, precious, endowed with a unique dignity that no other life form has and are to be treated, protected, and nurtured as such. Second in our storyline is the fall. The fall. Let me give you three applications of this for your worldview. First, all have sinned. Every human being bears the image and likeness of God. This is one thing we all have in common. There's another thing we all have in common. We are sinners against the holy God. We are sinners by virtue of the fact that we are fallen human beings. We are guilty because we're sinful. So the image of God and the stain of sin are two things every human being has in common. Whether you're white, black, male, female, rich, poor, you're a sinful image bearer of God. Our guilt is not predicated on any other line of demarcation other than being a fallen human being. All have sinned. Second, all drift into idolatry. Romans 1 is a treatise on this. Suffice it to say, the default position of every human heart, whether white, black, male, female, rich, or poor, is to give to created things those thoughts, actions, and affections that ought to be reserved for God alone, the Creator. So there is now working within every human heart an idol factory. To go back to Steve Hoppe's schema of God garbage gift, the default position of every human heart is actually to take gifts and turn them into gods. To take good things and turn them into ultimate things. To take good things and turn them into gotta have it things. Many of you probably heard the name Chris Evert. She's the world's former number one tennis player from back in the day. She won 18 Grand Slam titles, remains to this day one of the greatest tennis players of all time. After her career had come to an end, she began to struggle personally in her life. In an interview with Good Housekeeping in 1990, she said this. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life was defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. Her courage to go public with her struggles is a help to the rest of us. Because we're all just like her. Chris needed the tennis wins to feel special, valuable. Winning gave her distinction. And when the wins dried up, 
She became depressed. This is the operating system of idolatry. It functions within every human heart. Your own heart drifts towards looking to someone or something and saying, if I have that, then I'll be happy. But idols always disappoint. They end up leaving you worse off than you were before. The world is awash in idolatry. And Christian, your greatest struggle in life is with idolatry. Turning to someone or something other than God and saying, if I have that, I'll be happy. Third implication, application of the fall. The material world corrupted. We sang about it. For the creation was subjected to frustration in Romans 8. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it and hoped that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. See, the material world also suffers under the curse of sin. This is why tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes kill people and wreak havoc on towns, villages, and cities. So the fall has impacted not only every human being, it has impacted every corner of creation. Now, I want to pause here and I want to meld together creation and fall to help you see how this ought to impact the way you see the world. Every interaction you have with our world contains aspects of creation and fall simultaneously. Our world is a mixed bag. Start with nature. On the one hand, it is difficult to comprehend how God could possibly improve on the Swiss Alps or Bora Bora or the Grand Canyon. But they are subjected to the fall. They possess marks of both God's original created goodness as well as marks of the fall. They too are a mixed bag, which makes you wonder at this point how marvelous they will be in the new heavens and the new earth. It's much easier to see marks of the fall in my own backyard, where last year I was introduced to the sod webworm My neighbor came over. I couldn't figure out why I had these brown patches all over my grass. My neighbor came over, whose lawn is immaculate, and of course gave me a 15-minute lecture about what I should be doing. (laughs) The sod webworm had devoured a chunk of my grass. Now, there are pockets of my lawn that, well, if it could get more rain, it would be thick and lush and green. And there are pockets where this little beastly thing has done its ravaging Destruction on my grass. Every corner of creation is a mixed bag. The same is true of human beings. Every human being is a mixed bag. There'll be moments when Joe demonstrates attributes faithful to his original design as the image of God. However, there'll be moments when Joe demonstrates characteristics of fallen sinful humanity. Every human being is a mixed bag. So when another human being disappoints you to their lack of Christ-like behavior, on the one hand, you ought not be surprised. They are fallen. When another human being blesses you, you ought to rejoice that the image of God is on display. Now, the same can be said of every society. Every society possesses aspects of its original created design of goodness. Celebrate that when you see it. 
encourage more of it. Simultaneously, every society contains corruption due to sin. Grieve over it. Point people to righteousness. The creation fall dimensions to our biblical worldview make our world a mixed bag. Everywhere you go, it's a mixed bag. So our stance toward every human, every human culture, even our engagement with nature itself ought to be one of both critical enjoyment and appropriate wariness. Critical enjoyment and appropriate wariness. Not wholesale enjoyment because the fall is real. Not wholesale wariness because God's creation, though marred, is still good. Critical enjoyment and appropriate wariness. Third, redemption. Even though human beings are idolaters and through their idolatry have corrupted not only their own natures, but creation itself, God did not wash his hands of us, did he? He made a way for us to be reconciled to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus redeems us from being slaves to sin, he not only saves us, but life transformation begins. There are places in the New Testament where it's described as restoring the image of God in humanity. The work of redemption is restoring the image of God in humanity. In the fall, the image of God has been marred. Chunks have been taken out. It's got nicks all over it. The work of redemption through Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the way in which God goes about to restore the image of himself in us. That's redemption. So what are the applications of it? The first is this. Change happens to the gospel. There is hope for, for fallen human beings. There is hope for fallen societies. There is hope for fallen cultures. Don't give up when you see moral decay. Don't give up. The mere existence of the church for 2,000 years ought to be evidence that God doesn't give up. He does not give up. He is at work in the lives of people you know. You may not see how he's at work, but he's at work. Additionally, if you want to see people, societies, and cultures changed, give them Jesus. There is no redemption without Jesus. None. If you're longing for change in the world, the gospel is the only thing that can make that happen. The gospel is the power God uses to restore his image in sinners. Now, I want to pause here and work through a thought experiment, a silly experiment. Very silly experiment. I'm not sure why this one came up as I'm thinking through this, but alas, it's there and here we go. Let's start at the level of municipal ordinance creation. Okay, let's say there's, there's a municipal ordinance on the books in the town of Skoll that prohibits vehicles more than five years old from accessing Main Street. Okay? All right. In order to drive down Main Street in the town of Skoll, you have to have a vehicle five years of age or under. All right. How did the ordinance get there? Who wrote it? Who voted for it? Who opposed it? Whole series of questions you would love to ask at this point. Maybe the best question is, well, how does it get changed? <laughs> now, what would cause someone to want to change it? 
What would cause someone to want to change it? Now think biblically, not socially, not politically. Think biblically. Clearly, we're going to need creational and redemption attributes of our worldview to take over. We would say discrimination based on vehicle age is beyond the pale. It's an unbiblical prejudice. Now, what if the city council has been so corrupted due to their fallen nature, they reject the starting point? Huh? They reject the starting point. What then? Oh, yeah, you could, plead to, you could plead with them to tap into whatever shred of the image of God still resides within them. But with their fallen nature, we ought not be surprised if that's rejected. Maybe for most of them, God's work of redemption has not been happening. So the image of God is badly marred in them. What they need is redemption. <laughs> they do. But they can only get that through Jesus. In other words, they need more of the image of God in them restored for this ordinance to change. Which is what the gospel and only the gospel does. Listen, this is important. If you follow this step by step, you'll realize that if entire societies and cultures are to experience radical change, it starts by change within the individual heart. You have to get deep into the motivation of a person. Why do they do what they do? Say what they say. Think what they think. That's the core of the person that needs to change. Oh, sure. Maybe you win a few elections. Maybe you reverse Skoll's ordinance. But here's what's going to happen. Politics is cyclical because the fallen human nature, nature is perpetual. You'll have to contend with this thing all over again. All over again. Individual heart change is the only route to lasting change. You can write that down. Individual heart change is the only route to lasting change. And that happens only through the gospel. Evangelism, seeing people genuinely converted to the gospel, is the best way to establish biblical justice in the world. Apostle Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 3. And we, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image. We are. With ever-increasing glory. Which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The gospel is the only thing that changes people. Second, the church is a taste of heaven. Because it is Jesus and the gospel who effect redemption in a person's life and begin to transform them from the inside out, as Christians, we ought to have higher expectations of each other in the world. Can I say it again? We ought to have higher expectations of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, part of the family of God, redeemed family of God, higher expectations of each other than the world. When the church gathers, it ought to be more like heaven than your country club than your chess club, than the flag football league, than the bridge club, or poker night, especially poker night. <laughs> the Apostle Paul has higher expectations of Christians than he does the world. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Therefore, that's not a part of your new life. So these lifestyle characterize people who are not washed. This whole list, lifestyles, characterize people who are not washed. They're not sanctified. They're not justified. They're not saved. Paul says, your lives no longer look like this because you have repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus. Paul has higher expectations for Christians because something has transpired within them that enables them to be the image of Christ to each other in the world. So we call each other up in the church. We call each other up. Live in alignment with your new self. Next, expect little from the unredeemed. There's an interesting tidbit of New Testament trivia you might find interesting, and I'm going to use D. Martin Lloyd-Jones to tell it to you. He writes this, the New Testament is never interested in conduct and behavior itself. I can go further and say that the New Testament does not make an appeal for good behavior to anyone but Christian people. The New Testament is not interested as such in morality of the world. It tells us quite plainly that you can expect nothing from the world but sin and that in its fallen condition it is incapable of anything else. In Titus 3.3, Paul tells us that we were all once like that. Thus, there is nothing, according to the New Testament, that is so fatuous and so utterly futile as to turn to such people and appeal to them to live the Christian life. The truth is, it only has one message for people like that. The message of repentance. When we call lost people to act like Jesus without first giving them the gospel, we're feeding them legalism. And we're setting them up for failure. Look up here. In order to live like Jesus, you have to be united to Jesus. In order to live like Jesus, Christ must be living in you. There's no shortcut to Christ-like behavior. The only way it happens is if you're united to Christ, if Christ lives in you. Lost people act like lost people. Expect it. Christian people ought to act like Christian people. Call for it. Last, restoration. While redemption offers hope that human beings, societies, and cultures are within God's reach to transform, and we see that evidenced in the 2,000-year history of the church, the fact that sin still resides within the heart of the believer tells us we're still going to be a mixed bag. Less so, but still a mixed bag. Romans chapter 7 says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Christians, though less of a mixed bag, are still a mixed bag. Now, what bears further witness to this? 
What bears further witness to this? It's the notion that our future, right? Revelation is much brighter than the one we're living in today. Our future is much brighter than the one we're living in today. And I'm not just talking about conditions of the world. I'm talking about conditions within each human heart, each Christian's heart. What did Johnny Erickson Tata say when she was being interviewed? She's, she's being asked about heaven, right? And the assumption of the person asking the question was, she looks forward most to not being a quadriplegic anymore, to being able to use her body, being able to walk and run and jump and all that sort of thing. And Johnny's quick response was, yeah, that's a perk. But the thing I look forward to most is being free of sin. So, a sin-free life awaits you, Christian. What are the implications of this? Two, our final two applications. Temper your expectations for this life. Temper your expectations for this life. Christian, your best life is not this one. (laughs) Your best life is not this one. The best society is not this one. The best culture is not this one. Your best life is yet to come. The best society is yet to come. The best culture is yet to come. Expect trials, some of them severe. Expect degradation and deterioration. You will not build utopia here on earth. Sure, in the church, we should be a foretaste of that utopia. We should get little driblets of it. But you will not build utopia here on earth. Relax. The world is not yours to save. My heart hurts for those thoroughly wrapped up in political activism or social justice causes who seem to think this world is all there is. When you believe this world is all there is, that can't help lead to pharisaicalism, right-wing, left-wing pharisaicalism. Personal righteousness is developed through this active pursuit of some sort of utopia. When that happens, judgment of the self and others can't help but flow from it. Please temper your expectations for this life. Your best life, the best culture, the best society is not this one, and the world is not yours to save. Revelation made that abundantly clear. How does utopia happen? Jesus comes back. Last, look to the future. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, this life is the only heaven you'll ever experience. If you are a Christian, This life is the only hell you'll ever experience. Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I read that verse and I think, I don't know how that can possibly be. Because present sufferings can feel overpowering. Not worth comparing? Well, compare a little bit. No, he says not worth comparing. It must mean that the life that God has for us in the future is going to make every suffering in this life forgettable. This is where the strength to endure comes from. I've shared with this 
with you before. When Jonathan Edwards was just 18 years old, he preached a sermon called Christian Happiness. The main points of his sermon were this. Our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken away from us, and the best things are yet to come. Our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken away from us, and the best things are yet to come. So what is a biblical worldview? It's accountability to God. What does God think about this? It's the first and fundamental question you've got to ask. What does God command me to do or think? Matter matters to God. We have a delightfully nuanced responsibility to both use the material world for our enjoyment and benefit and take care of it as benevolent rulers over the very thing God said is very good. The dignity of human life. Every human life is precious and valuable and worth protecting and nurturing. All have sinned. All people are guilty by virtue of the fact that we're fallen human beings. Every human being drifts into idolatry. The default operating system within every human heart is to look to someone or something other than God and say, if I have that, I'll be happy. The material world corrupted. Why are there tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes? Why do your tomato plants fail and sod webworms wreak havoc on your lawn? It's because the creation has been subjected to decay. What will Bora Bora be like when God restores it to his perfect condition? Now listen, for the record, I've never been to Bora Bora. I don't know. I've seen pictures. Looks pretty good. Change happens through the gospel. Individual lives and entire societies are transformed when the image of God and mankind is restored. And that happens through one way. The power of the gospel. Working in the hearts of humanity. If you want to see the world changed, by the, if you want to see the world changed, give them Jesus. The church is a taste of heaven. The church is a society of people who image God clearer than any other collection of people because of the work of the gospel in them. We should call for this from each other. Expect little of the unredeemed. God doesn't make moral demands of lost people. The only call that goes out to them is repent and believe the gospel. You can't act like Jesus when you're not united to Jesus. Temper your expectations for this life. Your best life is not this one. The best society and culture is not this one. And last, look to the future. If you're not a Christian, this life is the only heaven you'll ever experience. If you are a Christian, this life is the only hell you'll ever experience. I want to reiterate what I said at the top. You need to dig into this one. You need to dig into this one. The fact of the matter is some of you are using glass lenses that need to be replaced with a different prescription. Some of you have got an operating system on your laptop that needs to be upgraded. Okay? Let's do that. Let's pray. And God, fundamentally what we're after here is to be able to see all of reality the way you do. We want your perspective. From every day, we want your perspective. Hour by hour, we want your perspective. We want to think your thoughts after you. We want to respond to life the way you would. Because as your people, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you have done so to make us image you. It's a tall order. 
But I pray that you would do that in us. That you would refashion us, reform us. That we may be the very presence of your son in the world. We ask these things for the glory of your name. Amen.